Hey, what's going on, y'all? This is Dawn Staley winning our second national championship. Like, I didn't know that it was a historical thing, that no other black coaches won more than one. And I probably would have felt a lot more pressure knowing that prior to. So I'm glad I found out afterwards. It's the strangest thing. The very thing that you work so hard for every year, just as a black coach, that's not a part of it. Like, it's not a part of, oh, I want to I wanna be the first black coach to win multiple national championships. Like, that wasn't a part of a goal of mine. It just happened organically. Seriously, like, I grew up in the projects in North Philly, and now I'm 22 years into coaching, and I'm doing something that has never been done. Like, all the coaches that came before me, all the coaches that will come after me, I dangle something in front of them for them to reach high for and hopefully don't leave me here alone. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Jessica Smetana. I'm Kate Fagan. And that was Don Staley. And you're going to hear more from Don Staley later on in this season of Off the Looking Glass. But today, Kate, we have some other things for our listeners. What do we have today? Yeah, we're we're kind of bringing it back a little bit, Jess. Like we're gonna have to get into that like jean jacket, popped collar, '80s vibe. I don't Ooh. know. Is rollerblading '80s? I think it's. I think it predates the '80s, but ah, okay. that's okay. I'm trying to think of 1980s cultural artifacts. Like, um, I don't know. What do we think? Sort of like oversized MC Hammer pants. Am I still in the 90s? Do I not understand the 80s properly? Kate, I hate to say this because it it feels (laughs) shitty, but I wasn't born yet. So I don't know what the 80s were like. And so that's why this episode, it's educational for me too, because we're going to learn some things that maybe if you're listening, you don't remember you weren't around for. On the show today, we have... Cheryl Miller, (gasps) icon, icon of women's basketball, not just a player for Southern California, not just a coach, not just an Olympian. You probably also, you know what? I'm getting too carried away. We got other things on the show. I will hype intro Cheryl Miller, but mm, it's pretty cool, Jess. We also have on this show today, we have an extra extra brought to you by yours truly, also from the 1980s, about a female athlete whose daring swim helped end the Cold War. <gasps> the Cold War. Wow. We're bringing history into what it. What was that? <laughs> and of course, don't skip the ads because we have either another gem or another flop. It depends how you see our sketches and our attempts at comedy here on Off the Looking Glass. But before we send you on that journey back to the 1980s with the scrunchies and the leg warmers and the boom boxes, I mean, Jess, can you believe that people used to carry boom boxes around on their shoulder because that's the only way music was portable? It sounds so so heavy. And like, if you scratched a CD, you couldn't listen to it. Did they even have CDs yet in the 80s or was it still vinyl? I don't even know. Floppy disks? Yeah. When were those a thing? Cassettes. They were cassettes, Ah, Jess. That's what we were listening to in the 80s. (laughs) Missed a step. Okay. Before we get to all that, we have to spend a couple minutes on C. Vivian Stringer, the legendary coach for Cheney State, Iowa, and most recently Rutgers, who recently announced 
her retirement because this is, I mean, this show is filled with legends from the top, Don Staley, all the way through, and we have to give a nod to see Vivian Stringer. She's the only woman to coach an HBCU into the NCAA final, the only HBCU team to ever make a final in the women's tournament, which is a, a massive historical achievement, which she did at Cheney State before then going to Iowa and then Rutgers. And she's made four Final Four appearances, Kate. So actually, Jess, this entire show is grounded in the 80s because... See, Vivian Stringer was in the first ever NCAA women's final, as you mentioned with Cheney State, and that was in 1982. So we got a little theme here today. So stick around. Our guest today was enshrined in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame and the Naismith Hall of Fame. She was a back-to-back NCAA champ and lit up Hollywood. She was a member of the U.S. national team that won the country's first ever women's hoops gold. At 22, I was considered by everyone the greatest player in women's basketball. She's a trailblazer and she's a legend. Having Cheryl Miller on our team was a new frontier for women's basketball. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, Cheryl Miller. Okay, I have to go back in time now because after we spoke last time, I was then doing my New York Times archive readings and I read this anecdote suggesting, and I assume it's true, that you are possibly the first ever woman to dunk. Mm -hmm. The New York Times wrote this piece about you dunking. It wasn't the basis of the whole piece, but the anecdote, it was Reggie saying like, in high school, you sort of were just like, I think I'm feeling it right now. And then went, and dunked, maybe in the backyard. I don't know if I'm getting it right or wrong. Was this true? <laughs> I would dunk, I would dunk in the backyard. And you know, like the courts like concrete, a basket, and that was it. So dunking on that wasn't an issue. But it's one of those things, Kate, where you're you're in warm-ups and all of a sudden I'm used to lay up and hitting the backboard. Well, I went to lay it up, and now my hands like near the rim. I'm like, huh? Huh? Oh, so we're in warmups and I go to dunk and I just laid it in. And now I know I'm like above the rim like this. And I go, okay, let's turn it. So I was telling my teammates in the huddle, I said, hey, if I get a breakaway, don't run behind me because I'm going to dunk it. They're like, shut up, Cheryl. Shut up. Just wait. Just wait. First half goes by. I have a couple breakaways. Just lay it up. So now the crowd we're on the road at Norda Vista and they're, you know, they're talking all this kind of stuff. And I said, okay, next one, I get to steal, got to steal, dribbling, and I start slowing up, get my pacing down, go up, and I go to lay it up again. And I changed my mind and then I dunked it. And then I landed and then I see people in the stands like jumping up and down. And I'm just standing there like frozen. And the official is like tossing the kid the ball out of bounds. Like, come on, let's, you know, let's keep it going. Let's keep the game going. And she's looking at me like, did she just do what I thought she did? And then everybody's in shock. So I'm running down the court, like high-fiving everybody. And yeah, yeah, dunk the ball. That could have been the first ever dunk. Probably was. That's pretty awesome. Congratulations. Hey, no, <laughs> no, but no. But what I, how I dunk compared to like Brittany, now that, that is dunking. Yeah. That now, when you, <laughs> when you can drive baseline, you get the ball and you drive baseline and dunk, I'm like, now that, 
Yeah. yeah, that takes yeah. it to a whole different level. <laughs> yeah, it was was it Fran Bellini had a great dunk in the NCAA tournament, the Stanford right, player. Right, right, right. She had a really yes. nice dunk yes. too. Yeah, yes. And you know what's what's funny about it is even though women have done it, what they were hoping to benefit from it, I don't think they got what they thought they were going to get. This a whole new influx of fans and everything else. No, the same people are there. The same people who supported you when there was one person in the stand the 15 to 20,000 in the stand, you know, and the duck didn't revolutionize women's basketball. No, the athletes got stronger, better coaching, got stronger and better and people became smarter and technology and scouting and everything else. So the game was the evolution. It wasn't just one specific game skill. Yeah, for sure. Cause I think there were, everyone's like, well, if women dunked, then arenas stop would be that, packed everywhere. Yeah. You know what, from, like, from no. that, from that mentality to, like when they were considering lowering the the rims so we could dunk, I said, get the, uh, 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 good thing I'm a Christian. But no, are you kidding me? You know, I had a hard enough time with the smaller ball and all that because women's hands aren't as big. I'm like, this is just madness. I said, we are cheapening the game. The game is meant to play in a certain way, period. Yeah, what did you, because people would always ask me about the smaller ball and I was like, well, it's not necessarily easier to shoot. If anything, I got to go play pickup and then there's a big ball and I shoot just as well with the big ball. So I'm always exactly. like, I never thought the smaller ball was like more helpful in any way. It wasn't the answer. If you got a problem with the size of the ball, the chances are you should be playing a different sport. <laughs> yeah. Period. Yeah. Go play softball. Go, go play something else. But if basketball, because your hands are too small and everything else, well, chances are maybe you should pass. Just pass. Or, you know what? Be the best defender you could possibly be. That way That's you don't right. have to worry about the ball. That's right. Just Pat Summit will love down. you. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. But, no, just the things that they tried to do was just, it was absolutely, like, it was ridiculous. Okay, but going back to Reggie for one second, was there ever a time, I mean, where you were like, okay, I used to beat this kid in the backyard, and now, now he's signing this multi-million dollar deal. Oh, gosh. And that doesn't exist for me? Uh, no, no, I was never, by the time he was selected by Indiana, my playing days were well behind me. I was focused in tunnel vision on broadcasting. But for watching Reggie develop, and it shifted for us just one day, and it was my freshman year, Christmas break, and Reggie was upstairs taking a nap, and I said, come on, man, let's go, let's go you know, lace him up, let's go, let's go. And he stood up, and he was 6'7". I'm like, God. Dang, where did, where? And he's like, yeah. And then he spoke and he had that like kind of deep voice. I'm like, oh, puberty has struck in a good way for you. And so it was the same. I was, you know, knocking jumpers over him and everything else. I said, so you're just going to give me this all day? He goes, no, I want you to drive. I said, son, you don't want me to drive. And I drove past him. always had the better first step. Went to lay it up and he pinned it. And I was like, wow. Um, so I, I faked a hammy. <laughs> Went inside, and that's the last time I ever played Reggie one on one. That was a wrap. That was a wrap. Y'all know what I mean? no, he's he got you know it. when you're done. You me. know. Oh, I was like, nah, nah, that's no, I'm good. I'm good. I still, hey, I still, I still lead the series, man. I still lead the series, but that was it for me. So we were talking to um, Skylar Diggins Smith yesterday, and we were talking to her. You know, Diana Tarazi has like. Diana always pretends like she's just a baller, 
even though no one can just be a baller if you're in the WNBA, which is what Skylar was pointing out. She was talking about how like everybody in the W now, maybe not everybody, but most people in the W know that they 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 are also a form of activist at some point, just by playing in the W and trying to grow the W. Yes. And I was wondering, because it's a different time in terms of how we speak openly about certain things. When you're playing in like at USC and then in the 80s, are you all saying to each other, we're growing the game? This is a form of cultural growth, or is it only something you think in retrospect? Because these women now are actually saying it. I think it was a little bit of both, but more we were trying to prove that we deserved our scholarships because SC was known at the time, and for many years prior to us, a lot of us arriving at USC, we're a football school. So that's what it was. Yeah, we deserve the scholarship and then some. Had we not won, not just one, but two back-to-back championships, and the great thing, we're in Los Angeles, the mecca of media, so we got exposure beyond exposure. And when we traveled, we were showtime. We were the female version of our big brothers, the Lakers. Yeah, the Lakers. We were showtime. The Lakers. Of our big brothers, Showtime, Lakers. All right, we've landed in another rabbit hole, Jess, and I have been waiting for someone to even tangentially reference winning time, which our girl Cheryl just did in kind of acknowledging the Showtime Lakers. So, whoo, finally, the opportunity has arisen for us here in this rabbit hole. What have your thoughts been on winning time? I assume you've been watching it as a basketball fanatic, right? Yeah, my feelings were lukewarm as we started out in winning time. Mm-hmm. I thought episode one felt overwhelming. There's a lot of fourth wall breaking, yes. a lot of like download of information of people, which in retrospect, I understand there was a lot of information to give the non-basketball fans. But since that first episode, I'm off and running on winning time. I think it is glorious. What do you think? I like it. I like that some of it's shot in film. I think the 70s vibes are fun. And if you haven't been watching the show, it's on HBO. It's starring John C. Riley, Adrian Brody. There's a lot of superstars in the cast. It is about the Showtime Lakers, about the first season of the Showtime Lakers when Jerry Buss buys the Lakers. So our idea, Kate, is what? What are we doing in this rabbit hole? Adam McKay, friend of the pod, writer of Kirk from Fort Collins in season one. The show has been, Winning Time has been renewed for a second season. And I think we should make a little pitch to Adam. Yes, Winning Time could stick with the Lakers. Or Winning Time could become an anthology series. And in a subsequent season, we pitch Mr. McKay on a completely different team that fits the conceit of winning time, which I imagine to be a highly successful team set in a distinct era with formidable personalities and numerous plot lines intersecting throughout the year. So yes, with with also with like societal and like racial and gender commentary, right? Yes. Like there's all these things weaving through winning time. And so you think if we made a pitch to make winning time an anthology series, we we should pick another team from another era and do a season about a yes. season of them playing. Ba- is it still basketball? Do you have a yes, team in yes, mind? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I do. So 
I think, okay, Adam, I know Adam listens to the show. So right, I'll just obviously, speak to, everyone we'll, does. Let's Including Don let's Staley. Just, Don Staley listens to the pod. I mean, we could, li- Gina Davis listens to the pod. I mean, we, honestly, star-studded cast over there on that side. But we'll speak directly to Adam and just say, listen, Adam, we got a team for you. Let us just, we'll run through our pitch here. 1931. Ooh, right okay. after the Great Depression started. Okay. So our framework is the Great Depression. We're in that era. I'm not sure we have a film and a filter we could put on it, but we'll work on that. Those are the details. 1931, Philadelphia. Okay. We've got a basketball team, an all-black female basketball team called the Philadelphia Tribunes. And they're called the Tribunes. This is why Adam is going to love this pitch because one of the stars of the team Inez Patterson actually pitched the local all-black newspaper run and owned by Otto Briggs on becoming, having a naming rights deal. This, I mean, this could be Whoa. the first naming rights deal in sports. So in exchange for sponsorship and coverage, of course, they became the Philadelphia Tribunes. They were the quick steppers first. And then they become the Philadelphia Tribunes. And they end up having two iconic women's basketball stars, Aura Washington and Inez Patterson. Or Washington was also a tennis star. So we can wow, like- Wow, dual sport. Yeah, we can weave together. She wins numerous national championships in tennis. So of course there's going to be some drama. Like she going to show up for the basketball game or is she off on another conquest right. of tennis? She's I mean, like a modern Kyler Murray, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> so you've got the Great Depression. You've got an all black team that ends up winning and barnstorming well, the country. Don't, winning. Don't, don't spoil the ending of the season. Oh, yeah, yeah, I Don't, yeah. don't tell us if they win. I still don't know what's going to happen at the end of the season of winning time. I, I don't know what the Lakers are going to do, but it's true. So it's this true. is a true okay. story. This is a true story, this, though. Yes, this is a true story. And I think our first season, because it's an, an anthology, so we only get the first season, there's this dramatic rivalry with the Germantown Hornets. So intercity wow. Philadelphia, and it goes to a game five. And do you want to hear what the Philadelphia Tribune said about game five between the Germantown Hornets and the Philadelphia Tribunes? Absolutely. Okay. This was, this was 1931 newspaper. The cash customers fanned to fever heat by the ardor and closeness of combat gave outlet to all kinds of riotous impulses. I mean, what sports writing is so lame now. This was cool back in the day. Like, I don't even know what any of those words mean. So you you and I, we can write this script and we can write it in that fashion. 1930s newspaper writing. Oh, I I like that would translate. I like, you know, in the winning time show, like one of the characters in the show is really the time period. Right. And I think I think in our version of it in this story, like one of the characters can really be like print media this is mm-hmm. like the boom of print media right in the 30s yes there's no internet yet is that right i don't think the internet was until the 40s we have telephones but we don't have tv or internet no netflix so this is yeah. a i think that would be a cool motif to have in this and and i'm just curious you might not know the answer to this kate but what is your mascot if your name is the tribunes it's like a pen it's like oh. it's your yeah, it's it, it's an ink pen, not a pencil. Like a fountain pen. Yeah, like a, a like a really elaborate. Exactly. Oh, and wow. and it, it's it's tough to walk. You have to take small steps, mm. but it's a very dramatic mascot. And it's also encouraging kids who come to the games to write and read. It also has a societal benefit as well. Mm. I don't know if that part of the story is true, but the rest of it sounds really interesting. This sounds like a great story. I would love to hear more about this team someday. So, Adam, if you're listening, get in touch with us. We can fill you in on the deets. Kate seems to know 
a lot about the Philadelphia Tribunes, and I, I hope I yeah. learn more about them soon. We'll do that. Should we get back up to the original Showtime lady, Cheryl Miller? Let's do it. We knew after our first championship, what we were trying to send a message is that we do belong. You're not doing us a favor by giving a scholarship. We earned it. Not only did we earn it, we knew because of twins. Now, the twins, Pam and Paula McGee, they were the activists. They're like, she was, first of all, I've already paid for my scholarship and my sister's scholarship. And they're half of the people on this campus. So they knew what we were bringing to the table. And so that's what started us to kind of focus on, yeah, this is, this is bigger. This is bigger than just SC women's basketball and just women's sports in general. That's what started to slowly dawn on me, like, yeah, this is bigger than sport. When you were in Phoenix at the start of the WNBA, mm-hmm. were you paying attention to the ABL at that time? Yes, I was. I was. What did you think like, here's this moment in history where we have not just one, but two women's professional leagues that probably, if the other didn't exist, they each probably would have made it. Well, obviously, the WNBA made it. So what were you thinking at that time about, like, the differences between those two leagues and what they stood for? First of all, I was just proud that we had options. And it wasn't just you graduate and you go overseas and play or you whatever your major is, you pursue that career-wise. Sometimes it was with basketball. Sometimes it wasn't. But now they had two vying professional leagues for women. I thought it was fantastic. But after watching just the progression of, you know, Tara Vanderveer and the 1996 women's team, I mean, you talk about it was unfair from the get-go. I mean, it's the creme de la creme. The best, in my opinion, ever assembled women's Olympic team. They had it from top to bottom. And perhaps one of the greatest, no, the one of the greatest head coaches of all time with Tara Vanderveer and whipping them in the shade. I mean, they were more like cut up and defined than our men's team. I mean, these kids were physically, they fit the part and they played the part and personality galore. I don't know how much you've been paying attention to the W the last couple of years mm-hmm. or just even the energy. Around. I mean, it's been the moment we have been talking about seems to be here. Like the influx of, money and attention and everything you see right now, Mm -hmm. like even the draft, it was up 40% viewership, highest since 04, the NCAA tournament viewership up, WNBA viewership up. Yeah. I mean, how does it make you feel? I am so fortunate to say that I was a part of it, a small part of it, but each player who's laced them on and ran out on that floor and given it their all, we've all had a handprint on the game. And that's where I find the greatest satisfaction that I am amongst one of many who have helped continue to pay it forward. That's been the greatest satisfaction. Just watching the W, uh, the NCAA, the terms have been fantastic. I'm really pleased to hear that viewership is up. Am I surprised? Absolutely not. And again, I just want all the players out there, former, current, pay it forward, continue to pay it forward. Yeah. I'm realizing that most of history is filled with women who were not allowed to ever play sports. And I know this is an obvious realization, but whenever I think about, like, even my mom, like, kind of pre-Title IX, didn't play for various reasons, I have this feeling of, like, always, like, being 11 years old and playing, like, a a pickup game and just the pure Mm -hmm. joy that doing that brought me. Yeah. So the question within all of that is, like, 
Can you share with us what playing basketball felt like to you? Playing basketball, it started from pregame meal, which back in the day wasn't a pregame meal of champions. It'd be hot dogs and a bowl of Cheerios, washing down with some water. So I was in with that, go upstairs, have a nice like rest and everything else. But all of a sudden, I started thinking about the game, who I was defending. Offensively, where were the areas that they'd like to attack? Where were they most successful? What was I going to take away? I wasn't just going to take away the one asset that they had as an individual player, but I wanted them to have to really dig deep into their bag of tricks and go for number three, four, and five, because I was taking away their first three options. So what are you going to do now? Not only am I going to take that away offensively from you, now defensively, how are you going to slow me down? You're going to let me like bring the ball up, rebound, and bring it up and initiate the offense, which I could. I could get on the blocks, post a smaller forward on it. That's fine. Or I could take you off the dribble, pull up, jumper. So for me, basketball was such a passion, but more than a passion, it was a, a way of life for me. It was where I truly felt complete, that I knew exactly what I was here to do, what my goal was, and who Cheryl Miller was. That's was basketball. And it wasn't just because it's women's basketball, it was because of the game and the love of the sport and how it made me feel. Hey, sports fan, got a closet full of jerseys and literally nothing else? Are you constantly sweating it trying to figure out what to wear to your next big event? Then Schlerz has you covered with our brand new line of jerseys for all occasions. Finally, a way for sports nuts like you to rep your favorite teams and express heartfelt sentiments in fine custom embroidery. Make a lasting impression at your job interview with a custom Hire Me stitching on the back of your Milwaukee Bucks jersey. Make yourself known at your little sister's wedding with a slick bride's bro stitched on the back of the Golden State Warriors yellow and royal blue. Wow, I love it! You can even express grief and remorse with a very tasteful R.I.P. Nana or Sorry I Cheated. Oops! To meet the moment with the right message. Jerseys for all occasions. Because let's face it, you were probably gonna wear one anyway. A couple months ago, my mom sent me the popular quote from Arigo Saki, who said that soccer was the most important of the unimportant things in life. I like that. Sports are the most important of the unimportant things in life. The annals of history reveal to us just how often the highways of sports and war have intersected. I mean, here in this very episode, we already have one. In 1984, Cheryl Miller and Team USA won America's first Olympic gold medal in women's basketball. At the Los Angeles Games, which were boycotted by the Soviet Union, a women's basketball powerhouse. Boycotted because of the ongoing Cold War between the two superpowers. And now, we have a story about one woman whose willpower and determination is credited with helping thaw the ice curtain, which then helped drop the iron one. 
as a female or male athlete has a huge impact on the world. It shows people what is possible. It makes people realize that we can do things that have never been done before. And that translates to all parts of life. That was Lynn Cox, open water swimmer. She has twice held the record for the fastest crossing of the English Channel. She was the first to swim the Straits of Magellan and around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. And she swam more than a mile in the waters off Antarctica in just a swimsuit, cap, and goggles. No wetsuit. I'm doing the swim on my own, but I have a team of people around me that are watching the water for sharks or jellyfish or sea snakes or whatever. And I'm focused on moving forward and also aware of what's at the surface, but also looking below the surface. I didn't know sea snakes existed. And when I Google, I find more venomous than those on land, as if the ocean needed to get scarier. But these sea snakes, they weren't even the primary fear. There was a possibility I could go into hypothermia, or when I initially jumped into the water, the water was so cold that I could have what's called sudden death syndrome, where your heart is shocked by the cold. Translation, the stakes were always high. Lynn twice swam the English Channel in the 70s, but it was another swim conceived of by her dad that would make her legendary. Two islands exist in the Bering Strait, which is the water between the Alaskan mainland, belonging to the United States, and eastern Siberia, then the Soviet Union. One island is Little Diomede, U.S. land. The other is Big Diomede, Soviet land. They are just a few miles apart, and the international dateline cuts between them. America and the Soviet Union, actually just 1.7 miles apart. So my dad's idea was, why don't you swim from one superpower to the other to show that we're neighbors in this world? So I started thinking about it and working on it. And, you know, I wrote to Brezhnev and Andropov and many of the Soviet leaders. For 11 years, Lynn pursued this idea. For 11 years, she got no response. And finally, Gorbachev was the one that gave the approval to make the swim during the time of Glasnost. Glasnost is Russian for openness, which was the Soviet policy of open political and social discussions, which was instituted by President Mikhail Gorbachev in the late 80s. Here's Lynn again. The coldest water I had swum in to that point was 42 degrees when I'd swum across the Strait of Magellan. Even before receiving final approval from the Soviets, she and her team flew to Nome, Alaska to train and await official clearance from the superpower which came only 24 hours before go time. My memory of that swim is so vivid for the entire thing because I was so excited and so scared. You know, I knew that jumping into 38 degree water, I could have a heart attack and die. I knew that I could go into hypothermia halfway across and have to be pulled out of the water. So I kept telling myself, I have to make it all the way. You know, there's no way that halfway is going to work. Now, from the 1987 edition of the New York Times. Because of the heavy tides and strong currents, Cox swam as much as six miles in waters that Coast Guard officials said were cold enough to kill a person within 30 minutes. We were almost at the finish of that swim, and suddenly out of the fog emerged a Soviet skiff 
with a man on board who was yelling to me saying, my name is Vladimir McMillan, I'm from Toss, and the welcoming committee is about a half a mile, maybe a mile down the beach. Instead of landing where you're going right now, can you turn and swim another mile? Oh no, oh no, oh no. Can the welcoming committee come to Lynn? So I'm like, oh. You know, I'm freezing cold. I've been swimming for at least an hour and a half and my fingers are turning white because they're so cold and I just really want to finish. So we wound up changing course and continuing that mile. And then when I got to the finish of the swim, I couldn't get out of the water. The unwritten rule of an open water swim is to clear the water yourself. But all Lynn could find was an ice bank and she couldn't get a grip. So I reached up and suddenly felt the warmth of three men's hands on my arm lifting me out of the water. And that was like the most amazing thing because for all those years, I had been afraid of the Russians and afraid of what could happen with the world. And so to have that connection and realize we made it and they were helping me out of the water. It was just like a dream that was better than you could ever dream. Two walrus skin boats carrying researchers and reporters accompanied Cox, who was met at the halfway point by a Soviet naval vessel and greeted on land by a cheering group of journalists and sports officials who presented her with flowers and an ivory carving. To celebrate together after the swim was amazing and to have the Inuit singing their Inuit songs over shortwave radio and reaching out to their families on Little Dimeed and having the Inuit from Siberia who were there all singing the same Inuit songs together. The 30-year-old American endurance swimmer who had just endured two hours and five minutes of 44-degree water to become the first person known to have swum across the Bering Strait. Even so, her body temperature dropped to 94 degrees during the swim then returned to normal after she spent an hour in a chemically heated sleeping bag. The swim made international headlines. But Lynn's motivation wasn't headlines. It was affecting real, tangible change. I was so motivated because the idea was to use the swim as a way to open the border, to reach from the present into the future, and promote goodwill between the two countries. And it worked. The Soviet premier praised Lynn as a shining example of how to bridge the gap between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Last summer, it took a daring American girl by the name of Lynn Cox a mere two hours to swim the distance separating our two countries. By her courage, she showed how close to each other our two peoples live. That footage was from C-SPAN, and that voice you heard was Gorbachev's, toasting with President Ronald Reagan at a state dinner celebrating the INF Missile Treaty, a huge step in easing tensions. So the idea was that, okay, you just do this little thing, but it might cause something bigger. A year after that state dinner... From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Reporting tonight from Berlin... The Berlin Wall came down. They are here... In the thousands, they are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. I love to do swims. I love the athletic part of it. 
But my bigger goal in life is to be able to connect with people and inspire them to reach their own goals. Because I think that that multiplies whatever you've done, that you see something beyond yourself. It's really exciting to see how much further people will go and what more can be explored and not just in swimming but in all the sports and how those things will transform society. Kate, my favorite history class in high school was about the Cold War, and now I resent my teacher for not teaching me this story when I was in high school. I love that you learned about the 80s in high school, and (laughs) when this happened, I was seven. So, I mean, I could have, like many people talk about the Challenger explosion or where you were when, I could have somewhere inside my brain like a memory of watching Lynn Cox be pulled up onto the shore of Big Diomede by the Inuits and the Soviet Union officials. I mean, that might be somewhere in the recesses of my brain. And But I hope not, Jess, because I do not like to think about things that involve cold or water, and in mm. this case, really cold water. I hate being cold. Being cold is terrible. And we're both afraid of the ocean, as if you continue listening to this season, You will hear when we talk about the film Blue Crush. Spoiler alert, we're going to watch Blue Crush. (laughs) Yeah, we spent the first 20 minutes of that movie texting each other back and forth about how terrifying the big waves are. And they are. They're terrifying. We should thank a bunch of people for coming on this episode. Kate, who do we have to thank? Okay, we have to thank from the top of the show, Don Staley, two-time national champion coach, three-time Olympic gold medalist as a player. And again, you will be hearing more from Don Staley on Off the Looking Glass. We also have to thank Cheryl Miller for stopping by the show and bringing her infectious energy. A big thank you to Lynn Cox. And again, her book is out on May 24th, Tales of Al, the Water Rescue Dog. And she's a phenomenal writer. We have to thank you, Jess, for not just being on this show, but helping to produce it. Joel Shupak for the amazing sound design. Carl Scott for being the executive producer of this show. The Nameless Numberheads, a.k.a. the Named Numberheads, Henry and Mari, for helping us make all of the comedy and the sketches on Off the Looking Glass. We'll see you next time, or in the words of Arnold Schwarzenegger and 80s icon, I'll be back. (laughs) That was bad, Kate. Just cut, everyone cut that out.